All right, tonight's going to be just a little bit different than it has been in uh, recent weeks. Um, we are, I, I, I want to just kind of own up to a couple things first. Um, you know, it, it's, it's pretty f- common, I think, that, um, that you encounter uh, people or, or just, you know, in the culture particular passages of Scripture or verses of Scripture that are taken out of context on mass just by the, the populace, you know, that you hear passages of Scripture, they hang them on the wall, things like that, and you go, that's not what that's talking about, but okay, you know, and, and so there, there comes a time, a lot of times, where you want to step in and correct those and go, okay, this, that's, let's understand this rightly, let's understand it in its context. Um, last week, I, I dealt with Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. And we're, we're, the reason that I did that is because we're starting to study the prophets now as we're kind of moving along Old Testament history and trying to put the prophets in their proper context. And uh, I think there's a couple of things that were just a huge miss on my part. One was I went entirely too fast through the whole Jeremiah 29 portion, uh, perhaps even underestimating just how... Uh, near and dear to everyone, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is, and uh, and so kind of blew past that a little bit. Then the second part of this is that uh, that lesson I designed two weeks before I actually gave it. Remember, because the the week that I had designed it, we came and we just did discussion, and then I so I postponed it another week. And um, so when I originally put everything together for that lesson, I had intended to come back to Jeremiah twenty nine at the end, and show, let's say, how we do interpret Jeremiah 29-11 in light of the context and understanding the prophets. And I didn't do that. And so, and that was just a miss on my part. I got home and I realized, why didn't I do that? And I, I just forgot. So, my intention was never to, like, confuse you or to frustrate any of you. And the good part about being a pastor, the bad part about being a pastor is everything you say is recorded. And everything you say is in front of other people. Uh, and the bad part, uh, or the good part about that is you typically get another week on the back end to come in and go, Let me, I want to try to hit that pitch one more time. And uh, I still agree with what I said. I just want to make sure that we can, uh, all, you can all at least see what I'm saying, even if you don't agree, and that's fine. Um, so what we're going to do tonight is a couple things. First, I'm going to slow down a little bit and expand on uh, what I was saying last week, how I began last week. And then, then the second part of that is I want to actually just walk through Jeremiah 29. And not just Jeremiah 29. I want to actually follow Jeremiah's thought all the way through. And it's really not his thought, I guess. The Lord is putting these words in his mouth. Okay, so granted that. But follow what Jeremiah is saying on throughout so that we can understand what his point is. And then actually take that and put it against the rest of Scripture. And, and here's the hope. I don't want to take Jeremiah 29, 11, which is, uh, you know, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't want to just take that verse from you and go, it doesn't mean what you think it means, it doesn't apply to you, and take it down off your walls or anything like that. I want to actually encourage you with it in the way that it's meant to encourage you. Okay? That, that's the hope is that we are encouraged in the right direction. That's, that's our goal, okay? So I want to first just talk generally about the prophets and why they're so hard. 
Um, if you've ever opened up the Bible to read the prophets, maybe you've sat down for your, your morning quiet time or something like that, and you, you're on the list that you've got there is one of the prophets, and you, you read it, and you're like, I just do not understand what is even being talked about here. And, uh, and so you're left to kind of go, how does this apply to me? And don't we all want to get to that at some point when we're reading in the morning or whenever we read our Bible, we want to kind of go, how does this apply to me? Well, when you get a passage that is just, uh, I'm going to judge this person and I'm going to take down that person and, and then they're talking about the cow's abation and, and there's this, that, and the other and you, you go, okay, well, how does this apply to me? I, 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 I'm not sure, but, you know, don't eat cows from Bashan. I, I guess, I don't know, or, you know, something. You, you kind of come to a conclusion that may not necessarily be in the direction that it would be if you had more information, right? And so that's kind of what we want to do. The prophets can be really... Um, one of the more challenging portions of Scripture to understand because of its frequent use of poetic language and future predictions. Um, so that's, there's two factors going on there. One is poetic language, which when that poetry is used, we've read poetry before, just English poetry. You pick up a poet, and sometimes you get what they're saying, and other times you go, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. And then you may hear an interview with him, and he's like, oh, yeah, I was talking about, you know, the 60s and rock music. And you're like, what? That, it doesn't seem like it comes out at all in the poem. So that part of it is the, the hard part about reading poetry. There's figurative language, and you're trying to sort through all that. Then the other part of it is the future prediction. There, the prophets are clearly talking about events that are to come, at least in part, they're talking about events that are to come. And for us, the difficulty is going, when are those events? Precisely. Which events is, is he really talking about? And without knowing history, knowing what transpired after that, knowing when he's even talking, it's difficult to go to nail down a specific time period that he's talking about, right? So you all sense this? We get this? Okay, good. All right, good. It's, I'm not alone here. Okay. Um, but this is further complicated by our own misunderstanding of the context of the prophet and confusion of how this applied to our own lives. So when we actually ask that question, how does this apply, if we don't know what he's talking about, when the fulfillment of this prophecy is, when all of those kinds of things, and we don't understand the poetry involved, it becomes really difficult to actually apply it, or perhaps we just blaze forward and we misapply it. So in our rush to interpret these prophecies for our own lives now... We fail to grasp what the prophecy is actually about, making our momentary needs as the point of the prophet's message. Thus, the benefit of the passage to us is based on whether or not we can draw a straight line to our particular issue at any given moment. So, if you take a passage like Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you not to harm you. Now, it's pretty easy, and the reason that verse is so loved across many people is it is pretty easy to immediately draw a straight line to the situation you are in at this moment. It plans to prosper me and not to harm me. So it is, it, it's, it's, it's really pretty easy, and when we study the Bible, we have no uh, other steps to go through 
other than just reading the passage, draw a straight line to where I'm at, and realize he's, his plan for me is to prosper me. But here's some problems with taking that approach, is that this way of interpreting the Old Testament prophets is problematic, first, because it subjects the interpretation of a prophecy to the situation of the reader, which can vary wildly from person to person. So, let's sit you down on the couch with Jeremiah 29.11. I trust the vast majority of you would probably go, all right, the Lord loves me, He cares for me, He is, is for me. All right? That's fine. Okay, great. Sit Joel Osteen down next to you and put that verse in his lap. And what happens when he reads it? He says, plans to prosper me. And all of a sudden, the word prosper gets capitalized, bolded, underlined, italicized, and increased to a font of like a hundred, right? And lights. And so when he preaches to the congregation, Jeremiah 29, 11, you see there, his plan is to prosper you. And then you're left to go, well, what tools do you really have to say that is not what that verse is talking about? You don't really have any tools for that. Because you've done the same thing he's done. Granted, you came to a different conclusion because you have a little bit better background, a little bit better theology to go, to rein that in and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus was poor, had nowhere to lay his head. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. The disciples lived in, in, in relative poverty as they traveled around and ministered and expected that, uh, that the ministers of the gospel would do something very similar to that in terms of their, their travel. So, it can't be prosperity. You, you know that. But your method of interpretation can't stop the Joel Osteens of the world from sitting down next to you and going, well, I take this to mean that his plan for me is to make me prosperous. Right? So it varies wildly from person to person. And we don't want to have a Bible interpretation or a method of interpreting the text that simply says, let's just draw a straight line to us. Because then there's no obstacles to make sure that we don't interpret that wrongly or take it out of context. All right. Second, it renders some texts irrelevant because of their deep connection to another context. All right. So your reading for this morning is, say, is Jeremiah 29, 11, and maybe a couple other verses around it. But then let's say the next morning as you're going through Jeremiah, your Bible reading is Jeremiah 29, 24 to 32. To Shemaiah of Nehelam, you shall say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You have sent letters in your name to all the people who are in Jerusalem, and to Zephaniah, son of Messiah, the priest, and to all the priests, saying, The Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada, the priest, to have charge in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies, to put him in the stocks and neck irons. Now why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who is prophesying to you? For he has sent to, us, sent to us in Babylon, saying, Your exile will be long. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. Uh, the word, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Send to all the exiles, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaniah of Nehalem, 
because Shemaniah had prophesied to you when I did not send him and has made you trust in a lie, therefore says, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemaniah, Shem, Shemaiah uh, of Nehelam and his descendants. He shall not have anyone living among the, this people, and he shall not see the good that I will do to my people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. Praise the Lord, somebody. Amen. Draw the straight line now to you. It's, you can't, right? Because it's very clearly written to a, a correspondence between two guys. The Lord wants to straighten out an issue that's taking place. Okay, but I can't draw the straight line that I could with Jeremiah 29. So now, our interpretation of the Old Testament makes some texts not so appealing. And then other texts, it makes really appealing. And the whole way we can determine which one's appealing and which one's not is that we can draw a straight line from, from it to me. Well, can I draw a straight line from it to me on that one? No. So throw that one out. This is a bad devotional this morning. But, but the other ones, I can, so it's, it's really good. But third, and perhaps most importantly, it changes the focus of the Bible's message from a Christ-centered interpretation to a man-centered interpretation. All right. Let's step on some toes for a second. I'm going to be careful. <laughs> the Bible is not about you. It's not. Now, most of us are going to amen that. But what happens when we read a text and we jump immediately to how does this apply to me, we make us the center of its meaning. This passage was written to you to help you in your day. That's its primary purpose. It, we've made it about us. That's, that's a me-centered interpretation. Now, are you going to be a beneficiary of the Bible's text? Yes, in every way. Paul says, this is God-breathed. It's able to train, to correct, to you know, train in righteousness, all those things, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. So in every way, it is going to benefit you. But understand that the point of the passage is about Christ, and knowing that it's about Christ is the benefit to you. That Jesus, to you, is the one that gives aid. He is the one that helps. It's understanding and knowing Him and knowing what He did for you that corrects you, that trains you in righteousness. It is knowing who you are in light of Him that corrects you in sin because we all get proud and we all get boastful and we all get high on the horse. And there are times where the Scripture needs to knock us down a few pegs. Yes? So that is your growing and your training in righteousness. So the Bible is about Him. If you don't believe me, then believe Jesus. John 5, 39. He's telling this to the Pharisees who have a very <clears throat> man-centered interpretation of the text. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Now, it could be said, maybe, 
of people in the church from time to time that we search the scriptures because we think that in them we have eternal life. And the scriptures are saying, no, in Jesus you have eternal life, and the scriptures are teaching you about Jesus. It's not the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible, all right? We don't believe that's part of the triune Godhead. Okay, but we do believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible in that it, not only is it correct in everything that it says, but that it points you correctly back to Christ, right? So Jesus is correcting their man-centered interpretation. John 5, 45 to 46, and if you'll do the math, this is just a few verses later. He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Wait, I thought Moses wrote about traveling through the wilderness, and I thought he wrote about how they were to obey the law, and I thought he wrote about creation, and I thought he wrote about all those things. And Jesus is saying, every word is about me. It's Christ-centered interpretation of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. John 1, 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him on whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So now Nathanael com or Philip comes in and says, Not just Moses, but the prophets are all telling you that too. What about Luke 4, 27, straight from the mouth of Jesus? And beginning with Moses, well, I guess this is actually Luke commenting on what Jesus said. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, so what we understand then is that the, the way we are to interpret the Bible is through the lens of Christ. This is what's going to correct my friend Joel on the couch next to me from taking Jeremiah 29, 11 and ripping it, kicking and screaming out of context and applying it to whatever is bouncing around in his head and coming up with prosperity as the main theme of that verse. All right? So, and how do we do that, though? Well, it's going to be hard if you just sit down with Jeremiah 29, 11 and you go, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, and then go, now, come up with the Christ-centered interpretation there of that passage. That one's relatively easy, or one of the easier ones, I'll say, but it's still very challenging if you don't back up and understand the context of what's actually going on and why that verse is really encouraging, all right, especially to the believer. All right, so we're, what we're going to do is then go dive into a little uh, practicum here bit of practice. And I'm going to put most of these verses up on the screen and kind of, uh, I'm going to try if we can get this technologically squared away. Um, maybe draw your attention to certain things as we read this, but your passages are also in that verse list just like they always are. So you have them in front of you. If you can't read them on the screen or if the letters are too small, they're, they're in front of you. All right. So this is Jeremiah 29 11. This is verse 1 and 4. So first, what we have to ask is what is the context? So we want to get some very basic things, like, who is this written to? Like, we need to know that, right? Just like you would do a letter, you want to know who it's written to. So we got these verses, verses 1 and verse 4, that give us that information. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet 
sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders. All right, so I'm going to see if I can mark this up here. So, um, to the surviving elders of the exiles. So we automatically know when this time period is. The people are in exile in Babylon. Jeremiah is writing to the surviving elders, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people. So who's left out? Well, really no one is left out. So, um, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So all of this that's going on, all, this whole part of the, the Scripture is directed to a group of people who are in exile in Babylon. And we even see in verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all, to all the exiles whom I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. So, lest you thought that Nebuchadnezzar was the main one involved, no. Uh, he says, all whom I have sent into exile. All right? So we're very clear. We know what group that he's talking to, and we know we don't know yet what he's going to say, but we definitely know who he's talking to and where they are and kind of sitting them in their situation. So what becomes very clear is that in Jeremiah's prophecy... Starting in, chapters 29, starting in chapter 29, the context is set very clearly for us in verse 1 and 4. The audience is all the people of Judah in exile and Babylon, including the elders, priests, and prophets. Okay, It's the people of Judah who have been exiled. All right. Now, we get the next part. This tells us what is his message. What is he going to say? This is the Lord in the mouth of Jeremiah saying this to the people. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the So in other words, don't say, I can't imagine how we would ever have kids in a world like this today. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't say that. Don't decrease. No. Fill. That, that's what that means. Fill. If you believe that the gospel is powerful and the word of God is powerful, then, then multiply and give your kids the gospel. Okay, so that, that was free. All right, that has nothing to do with it. All right. Um, that's how you, amen, okay, on the couch. All right, uh, so he says, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and, and your diviners uh, who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So we understand a couple things. First, in the context, they are, well, it's very clear that he wants them to live there, as, as the houses that they build. He wants them to plant. He wants them to take wives and have sons, have children, sons and daughters. He wants them to marry off their, their sons and daughters. And they, he wants them to, be, so th we're talking generational growth, exponential growth of the family he wants to happen. Why? What is, he, what is his message to the people who are in exile? Increase. Have a family. So, 
Are you, as someone who's just been taken into slavery and you're feeling, oh no, I went from free in Judah to shackles in Babylon, how are you feeling? Tell me. Not good. Not good. And what is the message that Jeremiah, that the Lord through Jeremiah has for you? Make a home there. Go on and settle down and live for the prosperity. Don't, don't sit there in your, whatever their, whatever their living conditions are like, don't sit there in your little homes and lament about how it used to be and have nostalgia about the past. I want you to bloom right there where you're planted. So you just need to make a life for yourself there and just get used to it. Now, is that encouraging? I think most of you probably go, ah. <laughs> I wouldn't call it encouraging. Uh, it's not exactly encouraging, all right? But it is something, all right? It is, uh, at least the Lord is telling you what he's going to do, all right? And then he says, also, don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. What might they come in and say? Don't worry, this is going to be a couple of days. Don't worry, yeah. don't worry. This thing will last long. We're, we're going back, baby. Yeah, you, the days of glory, all right, are coming back to us. And he says, no, no, I didn't send them, so don't listen to them. Okay, so what becomes clear is that the first part of the message to the people, in, uh, people is telling them to make a home in Babylon and truly seek its welfare by prayer, marriage, having children, all right, and not listening to the um, false prophets that come in. All right, so now we're warming up. We're getting into Jeremiah 29, 11 here, okay? For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Now, I think that's probably a rounded number because 605 is when Babylon first came into Israel to invade and took away captives. Uh, 538 is when they were taken. So I think it's like, you know, 68 years, 70. I think it's, I think it's a, he's rounding. He's saying 70 years are completed for Babylon. I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. All right. Now, four. I will bring you back to this place. Four. When you see four, you ask, what is it there for? So, I know the plans I have for you comes back to bringing you back to this place. See why it's problematic, first of all? If we take it in context. Bringing you back to the place where I took you from is the reason for I know the plans I have for you. Okay? Okay? Partial. Partially. So when you take this and you go... Boom, make a beeline to me, baby. Prosper me. Are you going back to Jerusalem? Are you going back to Judah? Because that was the context. So if you just take a moment and you survey what's happening here, you begin to understand, okay, wait, he's talking to a specific group of people and he's saying something to them, all right? And it actually does mean something to them. I know the plans I have for you. Now, when he says you, and he says 70 years, how many yous are actually going to see this come to fruition? You think? The people that are the priests and the, here's the word, elders, 
We're not talking 13-year-old people, all right, being elders, all right? The elders, 70 years, they're probably 70 right now. How many of them are 140 and coming back to Jerusalem and living out their glory days? No, they're not. So what the people that are reading this understand now the you, I know the plans I have for you, is a, I know the plans I have for y'all. Right? Declares the Lord. Plans for welfare. Okay, well, if I'm going to die in captivity, it's really difficult for me to draw a line to welfare. But, okay, not for evil. How do I feel in captivity, though? God hates me. He's forgotten me. The message is, well, well yes, you're going to die in captivity. Yes, you're there. You need to make a home for yourself. But don't worry. I haven't forgotten. You're there on purpose. I sent you there. I'm going to bring you back. Well, I'm going to bring maybe the babies that you haven't thought about having yet. I'm going to bring them back. Okay. To give you a future and hope, welfare, future, hope, then you will call upon me. Whoa, why are they there in the first place? Because they didn't call upon him. They were idol worshipers. And come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Wait a minute. This, do we know this Israel? Do we know this Israel that's being described here? Come and pray and seek me, and you will... This is a magical new relationship that's going to happen that God envisions. I know the plans I have for you, and this is what's going to happen. You're going to call on me. We're going to have a wonderful relationship. And some of us, maybe if we were in exile, might, maybe, we were, maybe we were faithful to the Lord. We were one of the few, let's say. We would be, right? Uh, maybe we would be saying, God, I, I, I don't know that you know the kind of people that we are. Do you? Have you just forgotten what happened? That's not going to happen. Okay, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. All my heart, not happening. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes. So we got fortune, Joel Osteen. We got future. We got, we got great plan. We got welfare. We got, we got, what all, all else? Oh my goodness, there's so many things in here that this is like a really just pie-in-the-sky reality. And I will, look at this, gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you. Now it's not just going to exile in Judah. They're coming from everywhere. God is envisioning a world that we have never seen before. This doesn't exist. These are the plans that he has for them. Is all of this. I'll bring you back to the place where I sent you from. That, that, does, that has never existed. That hasn't existed. Okay? To them in Judah. It's never existed. So within this context, God gives them this glimpse at their future. And it's a bright one. They're going to be in captivity for 70 years. But God's plan is to bring them back to the land they left. In the future, God's people will call upon Him, pray to Him, seek Him with all their heart, and He will hear them and be found by them. This is the plans of welfare He has for them. He's going to bring them back, and there's going to be a, a 
just a relationship like we've never seen before. Okay? 70 years. All right. Israel, here, here's what you need to know. So that, that's the context, okay, that we've got this verse in. But what you need to then think about is, does the Bible itself before Jeremiah talk anything about this exile? Does it say anything about this exile? It does, and it's not, the, not just the prophets. Moses is considered a prophet, but I'm just saying not one of the 13 major, the minor prophets and the major prophets. Not one of them. Uh, this goes all the way back to the time of Moses. There's actually a prophecy in the law about this, and I want to read it to you, okay? Because I want you to hear the language Moses uses in, in, in Deuteronomy. And what you might see is some connections, maybe. All the nations will say, this is when, so this is when uh, he, he gives them the law, he gives them the law, they're about to cross in the promised land, he gives them the law again, and he says, just remember this. And if you don't abide by it, here's what's going to happen. All the nations will say, so all the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt, and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they, did not, uh, they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it, what is it? All the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. Does that sound familiar? What is this that they're going into in Babylon? This is not, this is not God sitting on the couch one day and going, what am I going to do with these people? Oh, man. I, I got an idea. I got an idea. I'm going to send them into exile into Babylon. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. No. What they are getting now are the covenant curses. You break the covenant, you get the curse. All right? You broke the Mosaic covenant, the law, you get the curse. Babylon is your curse. I told you it's going to happen. I told you I was going to do this very thing. Moses even tells them, it's going to happen. <laughs> but here you go. Good luck. I'm dying. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> Moses got out of this thing scot-free. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but he's bringing all the curses. All right? That's not it. Not all. You see that? It's small. Okay, 1 through 10. If you can't read that, just 1 through 10 on your little sheet. And when, okay, this is what you need to zoom in on, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations, uh-oh, where did God say he was going to gather them from? All the nations where I scattered you. Okay, and when they, you call them to mind among all the nations where you, the Lord your God has driven you, well, this sounds like Jeremiah, this doesn't sound like Deuteronomy, and return, return to the Lord your God, you and your children, 
and obey his voice. Oh, here's that obedience. I like it. Okay, we're obeying his voice now. He's, returned, he's called us back. We're obeying his voice. That I commanded you today with, oh, it's all your heart. This is also what Jeremiah said we're going to do. We're going to obey with all our heart. When he pulls you back in and you obey with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will, what is this? My friend Joel Osteen's ears are perking up, right? Oh, he'll restore all my fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land. Oh, what is this? Not what Jeremiah said? Okay. That your fathers possess, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Joel Osteen again is there going, yeah, baby. Right? And the, wait a second. How will this come about? He's going to tell you. And the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So what is he telling them? It's not bringing you back that is the fulfillment of the plans. It's circumcising your heart so that you will love him are the plans. So what does he want for them? Does he want them to just come back and own a piece of real estate? No. He wants your heart. And not only that, you can't give it. So what is he going to do? How are you going to love the Lord your God with all your heart? How am I going to do that? Well, God is going to circumcise your heart. That's how. Remember in the New Testament, we're just talking about new birth. God circumcises the heart of you and you, you profess faith and you come forward and confess your sin. How do you love God? How do you come to love God? Well, he tells you, I'm going to circumcise your heart. And the Lord your God will put these, all these curses now. What do they transfer to? Your enemies. You love me. You now care for me. Your heart is circumcised. There's no more curses for you. Now the curses are in your enemies. Because your enemies are my enemies. Those who persecuted you. Now we get to Abraham, right? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord. He's talking again about pie-in-the-sky reality we've never seen in, 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 we get into exile. And keep all his commandments. We can't do that, that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you, oh, look at this, abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of your ground that he cursed because of the sin of Adam. He is reversing. You see that? All those curses are coming back to be reversals for you because he loves you and he has circumcised your heart and you love him. He's going to be your God and you're going to be his people now. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and statutes that are written in the book of the law. 
he, you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's what he told them in Deuteronomy 6 that was required of the law. So you see this. Jeremiah is, maybe God through Jeremiah, is recycling the language of Deuteronomy chapter 30 and he's bringing it back to them because they all know it. They're hearing Jeremiah's prophecy and they're going, oh, these are the covenant curses. God was true to his word. He punished us the way he said he was going to. So Jeremiah, though, doesn't leave the prophecy in vague generalities, but specifies what fulfillment of God's plans will actually look like. So, if we maybe you, maybe you just skipped over that in your Bible reading in Deuteronomy, and you didn't know that that was even there, okay? That's a very real possibility. So, you're reading Jeremiah, what am I to do then if I don't have the context of, Je- of Deuteronomy to kind of speak into this? And I'm just continuing to read through Jeremiah. Well, if you keep reading in Jeremiah, he's going to spell out the plans that he has there too, okay? So, let's do that. Jeremiah 30, 1 to 3. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, uh, the word came, that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you, for behold, days are coming. All right, so here we go. We're talking about those days that are coming, declares the Lord, when I will, here's that language again, restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. Okay, well, he specified there, but he really means me on the couch, right? Okay, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land. So all that Jeremiah was talking about and Moses was talking about, Jeremiah tells us, I'm talking about that now too, okay? So you're tuning in that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. So he's talking about coming back and getting possession of the land. Okay, good, good. We're in the same time period, all right? And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more. So you're not going to be slaves anymore, these foreigners. But they shall serve the Lord their God and, uh uh-oh, David's dead. Who's he talking about? Come on now. This is the easiest question I've asked all night. Who's he talking about? Yeah. Whom I will raise up for them. You know Moses also talked about the guy that he's going to raise up in Deuteronomy 18. He's going to raise up a brother from among you and you're going to listen to him. So it's not just bringing you back. That's not what he's talking about. They were brought back, okay, some of them. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a time when they will serve the Lord their God and David their king. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. What time is he talking about? He's talking about a time when they worship him, he is their God, they are his people, where they fear him, they obey him. He's talking about, again, that pie-in-the-sky reality that we don't know up until the exile. For I 
am with you, declares the Lord. I will make a, oh, bringing the covenant curses on the nations among whom I've scattered you. Covenant curses now, or the curses now, transfer, since the Mosaic covenant, obey this law, have now been fulfilled since he circumcised your heart. Now we go back to the Abrahamic covenant, which is, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So what do we have now? Covenant curses transfer now to the nations where I scattered you, but of you I will, make a, I will not make a full end. Meaning, you're going to be blessed forever. I will discipline you, okay, yeah, in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. He loves them. Behold, the days are coming. Okay, now we get into the, where Jeremiah is in 31, all right? And this is what he says. Behold, again, we get that language. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a, what is it? New covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them, out of the hand, uh, I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this covenant, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Circumcise their hearts. That's what that is. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. What is the pie in the sky reality that, he, that Jeremiah is talking about? I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. When does that come to fruition? When he circumcises their heart, when he writes his law on their heart, when he makes a new covenant with them, when he becomes their God and they become his people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, Paul uses this language, and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. This is brought up specifically in Acts. For they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will, oh, look at this, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. What time period is he talking about? Who is he talking about? When David the king stands in front of them. Jesus of Nazareth. So the New Testament Christian now, you're taking into, into this some more context than just Jeremiah 29, 11, and you're going, you're beginning to see the focal point of the plans that God has for his people, plans to prosper them and give them a future, comes to be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see? Context, application, brings us now Straight to the cross. The Bible's not going to let you go, and I will be rich. The Bible's going to say, keep reading. And once you do, you come straight to the foot of the cross, and you go, no, 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 no. You are rich in every way, but if this is what you were looking for, I'm afraid there's nothing to be found here. So now I'm squarely at the foot of the cross, there on my couch, reading through Jeremiah, taking in, into account the context. I'm now to Christ. Are you beginning to celebrate? You should be. When we read Jeremiah's 
promise of prosperity in a future, does it only apply to the people in captivity? Hardly. We in the New Testament church have reason to celebrate this passage on two fronts. Well, I say two fronts. No, you can keep going. There's a lot of things. I'm going to just narrow it down to two. We know that God was faithful to his promise in giving us Jesus and circumcising our hearts that we might believe in this, the fulfillment of the plans that he has for you. Plans for your prosperity, financial prosperity, your salvation, circumcising your heart. Listen to this. Listen to this. Romans 8, verse 1. Some of you know it by heart. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Is that prosperity? You bet. Not what my friend Joel Osteen wants. But it is prosperity in every way. Or what about the verses that follow in that same context? For you, in verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Remember, I'll break, your, break the bonds on you. Okay. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we might also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the suffering Sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So now all of a sudden we go from out in captivity to being brought to the foot of the cross. And now we go, what do I have here? Well, am I just left to go, okay, well, Jesus saved me. And so I guess every passage of scripture that I'm going to read, I just come back to Jesus saved me. No, no, no. The rest of the Bible is going to tell you what that means. A whole host of things. One is... Do you understand what is to be revealed to you in the future? Do you understand what is coming to you in the future? Because there is no condemnation, because God is your God and you are His people, do you understand what's coming to you in the future? What's coming to you is all kinds of prosperity. What's coming to you is no tears, no suffering of any kind. And what does that mean for me today? I've got a cancer diagnosis. I've got poverty, i got bills stacking up, i got whatever the case may be. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Paul's saying, you got, you got suffering. We've all got suffering right now. But just understand, Christian, this is, touches not even the hem of the garment of what's coming. Be faithful. Okay? So that's one thing. But if you, oh, sorry, I I didn't realize I had those scriptures in there. But second, we have every reason to believe God will be faithful to send Jesus back to finish what was inaugurated at Calvary. Why do we know that? Because he's already shown his faithfulness when he promised that in Jeremiah, and he has begun to fulfill it every step of the way. You see, not one ounce of the plan that he had for them fell through. Not one. He fulfilled it all, and now he's got still outstanding promises of sending Jesus back, and that's coming. But how do I know I'm going to be there? How do I know I'm going to be there? Well, that's what Romans 8, 28 to 39 is for. 
We just went through a whole course on predestination, so bear with me. Here we go. And we know that for those who love God, oh, he's just circumcised their heart, so we love him, right? Okay, good, okay. With those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. How do I know I'm going to be there? Because he circumcised your heart and he set it in stone. The Lamb's book of life. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the, to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans are those. Right there. Not to harm you, but to give you a future. Not a future that withers on the vine. Not a future where there's still caskets. Not a future where there's still divorce. Not a future where there's still cancer. No, a real future. A future where every tear is wiped away. That's the future I'm going to give you. So in the time right now that we're living in, I can read Jeremiah 29, 11, and I can look straight back to the cross, and I can say, He fulfilled that. He kept His promises. And that gives me every reason to believe that the real future that Jesus just inaugurated there on the cross is going to come to fruition Sometime in the future. And now, as I suffer, I can do so with the utmost of hope and confidence. Suffering doesn't disappear. It doesn't go away. I wish I could tell you. Hey, you read Jeremiah 29, 11. Your cancer diagnosis is going is to be overturned. Look at that. He promised. If you'd only have faith. No. The cancer may be there. It may kill you. But that's not the future that he's given you. That's not the future. Death is not the future. No more death. That's the future. That's Jeremiah 29, 11. That's what it means to be Christ-centered in our interpretation. How does this take us to the foot of the cross? That's what we need to ask. Context. Fulfillment. Application. Questions? We don't have time for much, so sorry.
Real quick, Timothy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, amen, amen. So my hope for you is not to take Jeremiah twenty nine eleven off your wall, but when your neighbor comes over and says, "What does that mean?" You can take them to the foot of the cross through it. Okay. Let's <laughs> yeah. Richard used to run go- our own gospel supply in town. We'll see. We'll see. All right, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word and what it means and the fact that it takes us to the foot of the cross. We are grateful for Jesus. And I pray for any heart in here that is hurting and that is in the utmost of peril and that feels that all the temptations of the world or all the pressures of society or all the just sufferings that come with being alive, that you would encourage them through your word, that they would be uplifted by the promises you have actually made to them, that a gold coin pales by comparison to what is actually in store for your children. That we have everything to look forward to. And an encouragement that through and because of your future grace to us, we can endure the present sufferings. We praise you for that. I thank you for Romans 8, that it shapes and changes our entire outlook on life I'm so grateful that that chapter is in your word. We ask that you would continue to use this word in our hearts, now and always, in Jesus' name. Amen.